This is David Tarkington, pastor of First Baptist Church of Orange Park and the First Family Network. You are listening to the teaching ministry of our church. Thank you for downloading this sermon. If you have any questions about the church, go to firstfam.org or call us at 904-264-2351. A lot of pastors are at the Southern Baptist Convention this week, so a lot of churches across the United States are probably listening to their associate pastors this morning. So... I thank you all for allowing me to open the Word of God with you this morning. Um, if you don't know who I am, my name is Brian Hoffman, um, and uh, I'm one of the associate pastors here. And my wife Julie and our kids are over there, and uh, I'm glad to see everyone's face this morning. Uh, this morning, we will be in the book of Matthew, chapter 25. Book of Matthew, chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. I'll give you a moment to turn to this text pretty familiar passage but a very very important passage as we look to judgment eternity punishment and and hope this morning so Matthew chapter 25 beginning in verse 31 it reads When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then he will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray this morning. Ask the Lord to open our eyes. Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, your word is serious. The word deals with life and death. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to life this morning. Or give us hearts to understand, eyes to see what we cannot. Make us into what you want us to be. And give us what we don't have. Lord, we need you. I pray this morning that you would convict our hearts. Help us to be people who share this message with a world that is desperately in need. So, Father, we thank you for your word. 
I pray that you would touch every heart this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to show you guys a picture before we get started. You guys throw that up for me. All right. You guys might know this uh, sculpture. He's often called the thinker. He was uh, sculpted by the artist Rodin. He also goes by the name the poet. Some believe that he was modeled after Dante, the writer of the Inferno. Others believe that he was modeled after Rodin himself. The question is, what was he thinking about? You might have seen him depicted in movies or cartoons. Now that Tebow's back and we have reason to be Jaguars fans again, maybe that's what he was doing. His wife probably thought he was just in his nothing box. But we wonder what he was thinking about. Well, let me tell you, you guys will throw up that next picture. He was an originally cast to be set on this sculpture. It was originally meant to be the doors to a museum in France. It contains over 200 individual sculptures. It is known as the Gates of Hell. And he sits there. You see him at the top, pondering. So to answer the question, what was he thinking about? He was thinking about hell. So the next time you see his image on a logo or a commercial, my hope is that it brings to remembrance to you what he was thinking about. You know, I would submit to you today that hell is a doctrine, is a teaching of the church, and it is a reality that should not be taken lightly. And as such believers, as believers, it ought to motivate us to go, to be part of the Great Commission. And this morning, I want to talk about a couple of things. First of all, we need to, 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 to discuss what, what hell is. Second of all, we need to understand our place in all of this. What does judgment and prosecution look like for the individual? And lastly, I want to, just, I want to leave you with hope. Because we are not people without hope this morning. So what is hell? I think we ought to look at what hell is not first. Hell is not, as some believe it to be, Christians, along with culture, have been guilty of mitigating the staggering truth of what hell is. We individualize it. We relegate it to a lack of comfort or a temporary realm. One church historian by the name of Martin Murray said, hell has disappeared and no one noticed it. I think Danny Aiken, the president of the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, puts it pretty clearly when he says that hell has not really disappeared as much as it has been ignored, redefined, or in many cases, lampooned. While I was in seminary, he preached a sermon on this doctrine, which inspired me to do so a few years ago while I was preaching through the book of Matthew. Some famous individuals have been quoted. Dostoevsky said, what is hell? I maintain that it is the suffering of being unable to love. Oscar Wilde, we are each our own devil, and we make this world our hell. I'll do as Huxley. Maybe this world is another planet's hell. T.S. Eliot, one of the most famous American poets, said, What is hell? Hell is oneself. John Paul Sartre, hell is other people. That's what we might agree with. We consider hell, as one writer placed it, a netherworld, or some consider it, a netherworld that has taken on a new image 
It is one, more, one of more of a deep funk than a pit of fire. And as evangelical Christians, I, I don't think we've assisted Jesus or the Scriptures in communicating the urgency of hell. Um, oftentimes, we'll say something along the lines of, well, fear of burning in hell ought not motivate one for having faith in Christ. It should be a relationship with Jesus that motivates them, right? This isn't what we, what we put forth. Um, I would submit to you this morning that perhaps it's not one or the other, but that maybe it's both and that neither take precedent. Because Jesus talked about hell quite a bit. The impetus behind this message this morning, if you recall last week, Pastor David, as as he was uh, beginning his sermon, had mentioned that we have preached 52 messages on the book of Acts. Acts is an incredible book. It's one of the only books in the New Testament that's still going on. Uh, It's one of the only books in the New Testament that doesn't end in Amen. So what does that tell you? That you, as a believer, as, as a child of God, are continuing the story of Acts. Acts is the message that, that Christians are charged, we are called, we are commanded to go forth in the spirit and power of Christ, sharing the good news of the gospel. And please, don't get me wrong, I love Orange Park because we do not, we do not minimize or put on the back burner the reality of judgment and has not been minimized in those messages. But I want to present this to you this morning because while we are called, while we are on mission, what I'm going to emphasize to you this morning is that there is great consequence of ignoring that charge. Let me give you a little context of this passage here. You are all probably familiar with the, with the last few chapters of the book of Matthew, these, these stories that Jesus gives, these parables that Jesus is teaching. Um, in chapter 25, there's the parable of the ten virgins. And, and there's great application to all of these, these stories, uh, these parables. The ten virgins, they're told to be ready. You don't know when Jesus is coming. The talents, the good stewards, are told to, to be good stewards with what the Lord has given you. The sheep are told to take care of one another, to take care of their brothers and sisters. Because the world is going to hate you enough as it is. The world doesn't want to see Christians fighting, angry with each other. But throughout this chapter, there is this running conclusion in every story, in every parable, the virgins are told, I don't know you. The parable of the talents, they are, verse 30, it says, they are cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the goats who were hoping that they could look just enough like the sheep to be able to mingle in with the flock so they would not be discovered in their deceit and in their own self-deceit, who look just enough like them, are separated in this final judgment, and they are told, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. To think for a moment this morning that hell is not something that should bring us to our knees is utterly contemptible. So we've talked about what 
some people look at hell as, but I think as people of the Bible, as people of the book, we ought to go to Scripture for what hell is. And the Bible gives us very clear descriptions, and I'll just give you a couple this morning. Um, Michael Horton in his theology notes, the most detailed and frequent references to the reality of hell come from the mouth of Jesus himself. Matthew 5.22, he says it's a place of fire. 10.28, Matthew 10.28, is a place where the body and soul are destroyed. Mark 10.48, it is a place where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. See, the destruction that is spoke of in that passage it is never ending. A worm can't die. 2 Thessalonians 1.8, the Apostle Paul says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction. Revelation 14.11 says, The smoke and torment, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest, day or night. The punishment there will be conscious awareness of the pain and the torment that is involved. And perhaps one of the most striking descriptions, another one from Jesus, is in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 is the story, you're probably familiar with the story of the rich man and Lazarus. In verse, um, in verse 23, it says, And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the, the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish and in flame. He'd go on to beg Abraham. Verse 27, 28. I have five brothers. So send someone to my father's house, for I have five brothers. So they may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Jesus, again, spoke about hell more than any other individual in the New Testament. Why? If Jesus spoke about it, it might be pressing for us to speak about it. You've often probably heard someone say if Jesus talked about it one time, it's important. If he talked about it multiple times, it's really important. And hopefully the reality of hell might just sink in a little bit more this morning. Is a message like this meant to frighten you? Yeah. Because hell is scary. I think we also have to answer a couple of questions regarding hell. Because you are surely going to encounter someone as you are presenting the gospel to them, as you are talking about their relationship with God, you are going to encounter this topic because you cannot present the gospel message apart from the reality of hell. And so you are going to encounter questions like this, why would God send someone to hell? Why would God allow someone to go to hell? We have to address questions like this. We have to be able to defend them. After all, someone would ask, well, how could one be condemned for eternity for actions that happened in the temporary? Doesn't this seem immoral or at the least unfair, right? To condemn someone to the end of time for sins that were in the temporary. Well, two things this morning I would point out to you. 
First of all, the righteousness of God demands it. And second of all, it is what the sinner wanted all along. You see, an offense against God is not, as uh, Dr. Danny Aiken said, is simply slapping a mouse in the face. Sin is slapping the ruler and the creator of the universe in the face. It is an offense that is unforgivable. Any sin, the least of which, is unforgivable unless someone who has never slapped the face of God, who has never offended the ruler of the universe, comes in and says, I will take the punishment for that person. That's where the cross comes in. Second of all, it's what the person wanted all along. We say, wait, what, Brian? I would tell you this morning, God will not force you into his presence. He will not use physical coercion to put you in heaven. Frank Turek, awesome apologist, says that he is a God who loves you too much to do that. Russell Moore explains it really well. He said, hell is the final handing over of the rebel to who he wanted to be. The sinner in hell does not become morally neutral. We must not imagine the damned displaying gospel repentance and longing for the presence of Christ. They do not in hell love the Lord their God with their heart, mind, and soul and strength. Instead, in hell, one is now handed over to the full display of his nature apart from the grace of God. And this nature is seen to be satanic. The condemnation continues forever and ever because the sin does too. To put very simply, if you hate God on earth, you will hate God in heaven and you will continue to hate him in hell. Now this passage this morning, this message this morning is not as much a pure exposition of the text as it is a survey and understanding of this doctrine. Uh, But as we look at the text this morning, as we examine it, there are a lot of things that we need to understand. There are a lot of ideas and points that we need to understand, especially as it relates to the idea of this text is that there is a judgment and there is a separation and that there is punishment for, for those and that there is reward for the others. But this passage tells us very clearly that, that we are all going to face a prosecution. We will all be judged in the eyes of God. It, it tells us there in verse, uh, in verse 32, before him will be gathered all the nations. This isn't just a, a, a people in, in, a, you know, in Florida or Jacksonville or Orange Park. This is a universal judgment, everyone. But not only that, it is, a, it is an individual, and he will separate people one from another. We're not going to be judged together. We're going to be judged individually. Singing to that song, uh, I got uh, Eddie Money, I got two tickets to paradise. No. No, you only get one. There's no one you are going with. There's no one's coattails you are going to ride in on. God ain't got no grandchildren. It is individual and it is before God. We are judged individually. We all stand. Every one of us stands condemned in God's court of law. This is the idea of of the atonement, that Jesus has secured our freedom 
for us because he takes the punishment for our sins. This is what is called penal substitutionary atonement, that he takes the punishment in substitute for our sins. And we have to understand this morning that we are all going to be judged individually. Verse 32, again, all the nations are gathered and he separates one from another. The difference between the sheep and the goats is that the, the sheep are judged based on their faith. They are the representation of the children of God. They are judged based on their faith in Jesus and the merit of what Jesus Christ has done for them. But the goats decide that they want to be judged based on their works, on what they've done. The sheep have works too, but the works that the sheep are engaged in are works that are evidence of their faith in Jesus. James tells us very clearly, it's not our works that, 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 that get us into the grace of God. It's our works that show us, that, that to show the world our faith in Christ. We, we are... <clears throat> James tells you, show me, your, show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith through my works. Revelation 20.13 tells us about the unbelievers. It tells us about the goats. And it says, and each one, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. So believers... Choose to be judged based on the merit of Jesus Christ. It's evidenced in their faith in Him, while the unbeliever is judged based on according to their own works. Revelation chapter 20, again, they, there is this, there, it speaks of these two books. It speaks of two books, and, and one is the book of life, and it tells you in, in in that chapter, that those whose names are not found in the book of life, they were thrown into the lake of fire. And then there's this other books. It, it, it refers to them as the books. They were judged by what was written in the books. Some, some believe those books are, have called them the books of works. It's this idea that I can do enough good to get into heaven. I guarantee you, if you go knock on 20 doors today and you ask them, what does it take to get into heaven? At least 15 of those people will tell you, I just got to be a good person. I can just do enough good. See, there's a big problem with that. It's called sin. I love this illustration. It's not mine. I I heard it from one pastor in a message before. It's this idea that if sin is the color blue, so imagine for a second, sin is the color blue. If sin were the color blue, then everything you do in life would be a shade of blue. You open the car door for your wife or let the person in on the merge lane. Everything is a shade of blue because everything we do is laden with our own flesh and sin. And this is not to tell you that that you can't do good things and that there's no eternal value to the things that Christians do. This is to tell you that we are so wretchedly uh, uh, full of sin and and we are so desperately in need of Jesus' sacrifice. 
Because everything we've done, our best work on our best day, when we have woke up and we did our prayers and we had our devotion and, and we didn't yell at the kids and, and everything is going well, it's all full of sin. It's all blue. And that tells us that we need Jesus because there is nothing we can do about it. We could not get into God's graces based on our works. If you want to talk about works, you have to talk about the works of Jesus Christ. If you want to say you get into heaven on works, you might be able to do that, but it's not yours. It's Jesus. It's His work on the cross that allows us into the grace of God. You see, there is a judgment. And after a judgment, there is also a sentencing. You see, in this passage, they are judged according to who they were, to who they were in, in Christ or who they were in themselves. They are judged, and then there is a sentencing. They are separated. One, the evidence is heard. The sheep have proven their faith that is evidenced by their works. And they're even surprised when the Lord says, you did all this for me. But the others, in their inability to vindicate themselves, they are judged to be false. They are judged to be uh, imposters who have attempted to, to intermingle with the church, and they are judged to, and, and instead of, of, of finding substitution or atonement in Christ, they are sentenced based on what they have done in their own lives, it says there, into eternal punishment while the sheep in verse 46 go into eternal life and I don't want you to miss this here because there are many out there there are many out there that would tell you this morning well it's not an eternal thing it's it's a temporary thing there is the Roman Catholic idea that that there is a, a purgatory and somehow you, you know maybe, maybe you weren't that bad you can maybe end up here where you can maybe pay for those sins and then you can maybe get 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 to heaven eventually there's the idea that that uh, an, an, you know an Adventist would tell you that uh, that at some point if, if you are not in heaven at some point you just go into this this kind of realm where you will suffer a punishment but then at some point you'll just be kind of turned into nothing you just you'll just be erased from the database and of, of eternity and you'll just go into uh, non-existence this this belief is called annihilationism but I have to ask the question, if that's the case, if you're just eventually going to get there or you're just eventually going to be turned to nothing, what, what does it matter? Where's the urgency in that? If the pain stops eventually, despite how long it may take, I mean, now Scripture tells us very clearly, it is forever. We are talking about eternity Time without end, in the most unimaginable torture for the most unimaginable amount of time. The same word that is used to describe life in this passage is the same exact word that is used to describe punishment. And it is eternal. To sum up hell, Don Whitney said of this passage that hell is ten things. It is real. It is a separation from God. It is for all the accursed ones. It is eternal, it is fire, it is a prepared place. 
It is eternity with the devil and his angels. It is inevitable if you have never come to Christ. It is inescapable if you are there. And it is entirely avoidable if you will repent and believe in Jesus. Praise be to God this morning. Praise be to God this morning that we serve a God who is long-suffering, who is patient, who, does, who would not see that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Praise be to God who will tarry for us even at the sight of our own sin that we might be able to come to Him in desperation and repentance in need. Sadly, many will not. But here's the hope I want to give you this morning. This is a serious subject. But my friends, this passage, Jesus in in many ways is, is showing us this timeline of eternity and we are not here yet. We are not at this point yet. There has not been a separation. There has, we have not seen a final judgment. What that tells you is that there is still time. There is still time to be a, a wise maiden. There is still time to be a good steward. There is still time to know the Master. There is still time to serve the church and love one another. There is still time to come to Jesus. There is still time to repent and believe there is still time to have a relationship with God and to urge others to do the same. My friends, if that is the case, then then why are we hesitating? (laughs) Don't think that Brian doesn't put himself in this boat as well. Why do we care about things that have no value in eternity? Why are we missing opportunities to share Christ with others? Why why do the vain things of this world matter? I just want you to imagine for a second. I don't know if you need to close your eyes or... I mean, just imagine. You you, You are in eternity. You have met your Savior you have walked through the gates of paradise and off in the distance someone is running up to you and before you can even identify who they are they wrap their arms around your neck just thankfulness thankfulness that you you told them You told them about the good news of Jesus Christ and the punishment that there was for for rejecting that good news. You told them, and and they thank you for sharing Jesus Christ with them. They thank you for stepping out of your comfort zone and sharing your faith with them. My friends, we have to do what it takes, whether it's carry a track and share the Gospel. It might be apologizing. It might be apologizing to that person and saying, man, I, I should have shared Christ with you sooner. And you know what? I am sorry. I am sorry that I did not share the greatest message with you, the one that has changed my life for eternity with you sooner. 
Man, they will know you, care about them. And it might be uncomfortable, but they are going to appreciate it. My friends, don't hesitate or shirk back from telling them why. Because Jesus Christ loved them, and he went to a cross for them. He went to a cross for them to save them. We talk about this language, saved. You're saved from what? Saved from hell. Saved from an eternity outside of the grace of God. My friends, hell is not the absence of God. An an omnipresent God cannot not be somewhere. What hell is, is the absence of the grace of God. It's destiny to, to spend eternity taking on the full wrath of God without His grace. And Jesus went to a cross for us for this. There's the rest of the story, though. The rest of the story kind of speaks for itself. You have verse 25, and this is it. Chapter 25, this is it for Jesus. There's no more teaching. Jesus doesn't teach anymore. There's no more lessons. There's no more parables. He does teach the disciples in the upper room, but there's no more stories. There's no more parables. Um, with you know, Earthly stories with heavenly meanings. There's, there's no more of that. Jesus is going to a cross. Chapter 26, Thursday begins. He institutes the Lord's Supper. He will be arrested in a garden, tried in a legal court. Chapter 27 begins Friday morning, and he will go to a cross for the sins of mankind. And I cannot help but think that while that one of the, the major reasons that Jesus is doing this is the thought of his rebellious creation, that chapter 25 is on his mind, a rebellious creation that he loves, that Colossians tells us that he holds together with his being, spending an eternity in punishment and judgment. He is going to a cross so we don't have to go to hell. And if he doesn't go to a cross, we can't be forgiven. My friends, he did this because he loved you. He did this because you were on his mind. And he did this because he knew we could not save ourselves. And that is the essence of the gospel. The gospel message is this, is that we have a sin problem in our lives that the wages of which leads to death, death is hell, and we cannot fix that problem. But God offers a gift, and that gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, while we hated God, while we despised everything about Him and, and, and could not stand the sight of Him, He sent Jesus to a cross for our sin. That is love. You hear a lot of people these days talk about love. You can find a lot of churches out there where you'll hear the word love. Love this. Love, 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 and more love. My friends, 
You're talking about love with somebody and there is no mention of hell or sin or repentance. That is not love. That is not love. That is deception. The love of Jesus Christ apart from the reality of hell is not love. The love of Jesus Christ apart from the reality of judgment and sin is not love. It is misleading. Sure, it's a lot more comfortable. But we'll be able to use that excuse. It was uncomfortable. Chapter 28 proves who Jesus is. Chapter 28, he is our risen Savior. He is the one who went to the cross, died a horrible death, and three days later rose again, which proved who he was, vindicated everything that he ever did, and changed eternity. He went to death, and his revelation says he is now the one who holds the keys to death and hell. He is the one who sits in judgment of the world because of who he was in his resurrection. And it is the reason why we can place our faith in Jesus Christ. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, you can absolutely place your faith in Him. If Jesus rose from the dead, then it makes everything that He said in Scripture true and validates every other teaching that you could ever imagine in the world because of what He said was truth, because of who He was. So that's the story. It doesn't quite end there. Chapter 28 proves who he is. But then it ends with this for us. We have to ask the question, why? Why do we go? There's a lot of reasons. John Piper has a famous quote, missions exist because worship doesn't. We go because people are not worshiping God. We go because of the glory of God. We go because, as the Apostle Paul says, the world is, is longing, it's groaning to be made right with God. We, 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 but we also go because there are individuals who are perishing in their sin and their unrepentance, and they are destined to spend an eternity in flame and fire under the punishment of eternal judgment. My friends, we go because of this awful and terrible, terrible, terrible doctrine of hell. Because it is real. And there are many people, perhaps there is someone in this room that is living in that reality today. If you have never confessed Christ as your Savior, if you have never reached out to Him, in your unrepentance and and it it in in a desperate plea for forgiveness and realizing who he is and what he has done on the cross and placing your faith in him my friend you are living in that reality you are living in that reality and you are hedging your bet in hopes that your works will be good enough But if we have placed our faith in Christ, then he calls us in this book, in this, in this chapter 28, he calls us to go and make disciples. We go because he went. 
You might be familiar with the story of the Granite Mountain hotshots. There were wildland firefighters in Arizona, and 19 of which in 2013 uh, passed away in the line of duty at, after the winds had taken a dramatic shift and the fire changed course and, and the flames are rushing toward them and they're doing everything they had been trained to do to, to dig dugouts so you can get in and, and place these flame retardant blankets over you. They're deploying every emergency measure they do because they realize at this point that they cannot escape the flame. And they do that in hope that the fire will quickly pass over them and spare them. But when the fire had passed over them, and they were later discovered, they'd realize all 19 of which of these heroes were killed in the line of duty. I mean, you can't imagine the horror of being engulfed in flames. I remember they, they made a movie about this, and I remember watching it with Julie, and, uh, and she pointed out after the fact that the flame that that, that had killed them would be nothing compared to the flame that a person, that awaits for a person if they die apart from Jesus Christ. Christians, we have been given a task. We have been given a task. The world stands in judgment in hopes that it will somehow be good enough to, to make it We've been given a task because this world in its own works cannot escape, cannot escape from hell. My friends, again, if you have never made this decision to follow Christ, I, I plead with you today. You are not guaranteed one moment past these doors or one moment past this sentence. I plead with you today, come to the one. The song we sung, come to the altar. His arms are open wide. But we have to come in humble repentance of who we are in desperate need of our Savior. Because we've got to be saved from something, right? Christians, let us not be ashamed. Let's take the Great Commission hold. The, the, the SBC this year, the, uh, the, the, the theme is we are Great Commission Baptists. The Great Commission drives everything we do. Every, every ministry, every motivation that we have is because of these verses in Matthew. And I would tell you this morning that the Great Commission is not a set of verses in Matthew. The Great Commission is the whole Bible. The Great Commission is that, that Jesus Christ was sent to earth as you and I are sent to others. We, we model the Great Commission off of what Jesus has done for us. The Great Commission is not some verses. It is our life. And let us not be ashamed because people are perishing. Because there is a reality. Because people are not thinking. They're not thinking about hell. 
And because we faced hell. Christian, because you faced hell. Jesus went to a cross. And because he went to a cross, let us help others escape hell. Charles Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. You may have heard this quote before. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Let us, we must, we must do all we can to save sinners. Don't get me wrong. God will grant the increase. You do not have the power to save, but you have the only message that has the ability to save. No one else in the world does. No other religion. It's only people that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ have the good news that saves a sinner from repentance, from sin, that brings sinners into repentance. God will ultimately grant the increase but let us, when we stand before the Father one day, be able to say that we did all that we could do. Because this is a terrible, terrible reality. But the hope of Jesus Christ is an even greater one. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that your word is true. Lord, we thank you that your word has enough grace in it to let us know that there is a reality of judgment and punishment for those outside of your family. Lord, you have given us the words of eternal life. The gospel is the message of salvation. It is the power of salvation. But the gospel apart from the reality of hell is not the gospel. It's a good feeling. So Lord, I pray this morning that, that as we depart from here today, that you would allow us to think on this. Allow us time to ponder it. To talk about it with our families with those that need to hear. Lord, let it be a reality. Let the truth of what your scripture says about it be a reality to us. And Lord, if there is one in here whose this reality has pierced their hearts, Father, I pray that you would give them the boldness and the strength to, to make that move, to come to your altar to know you, to be saved. And Lord, we will give you all the glory and the praise and the honor. And it is in the name of your Son that I pray.